Microsoft Story Classic, bringing to you recordings of old storybooks. Sir Gibby, Episode 23 More Schooling the first opportunity Donald had, he questioned Fergus as to his share in the ill usage of Gibby. Fergus treated the inquiry as an impertinent interference and mounted his high horse at once. What right had his father's herd boy to question him as to his conduct? He put it so to him, and in nearly just as many words. Thereupon answered Donald, "'Is this, ye see, Fergus, ye hay been uncle guide to me, and I'm mare obligated till ye nor I can say, but it wad be a scurner thing to take the land o' books frae ye, and spear questions at ye at I cannot make oot myself, and sin gay, I would dispense ye, I'm a hurt for cruelty and rang. What was the crater punished for? Tell me that.' According to your aunt's ain account, he had attained nothing, and he had done nothing but good. Why didn't he speak up then and defend himself and not be so obstinate, returned Fergus. He wouldn't open his mouth to tell his name or where he came from even. I couldn't get him to utter a single word. As for his punishment, it was by the laird's orders that Angus Macflop took the whip to him. I had nothing to do with it. Fergus did not consider the punishment he had himself given him as worth mentioning, as indeed, except for honesty's sake, it was not beside the other. Well, I'll be a man some day, and Angus, I'll hae it to saddle with me, said Donald through his clenched teeth. Man, Fergus, the crater's as dumb as a worm, I didn't believe it. Ever he spack a word in his life. This cut Fergus to the heart, for he was far from being without generosity or pity. How many things a man who is not awake to side strenuously with the good in him against the evil, who is not on his guard lest himself should mislead himself, may do of which he will one day be bitterly ashamed? A trite remark it may be, but reader, that will make the thing itself no easier to bear. Should you ever come to know you have done a thing of that sort? I fear, however, from what I know of Fergus afterwards, that he now, instead of seeking about to make some amends, turned the strength that should have gone in that direction to the justifying of himself to himself and what he had done. Anyhow, he was far too proud to confess to Donald that he had done wrong, too much offended at being rebuked by one he counted so immeasurably his inferior, to do the right thing his rebuke set before him. What did the business matter? The little rascal was nothing but a tramp, and if he didn't deserve his punishment this time, he had deserved it a hundred times without having it, and would ten thousand times again so reasoned Fergus. While the feeling grew upon Donald that the crater was of some superior, came from some other and nobler world, I would remind my reader that Donald was a Celt, with a nature open to every fancy of love or awe, one of the same breed with the Galatians, and like them, ready to be bewitched, but bearing a heart that welcomed the light with glad rebound, loved the lovely, nor loved it only, but turned towards it with desire to become like it. Fergus, too, was a Celtic in the main, but was spoiled by the paltry ambition of being distinguished. He was not in love with loveliness, but in love with praise. 
He saw not a little of what was good and noble, and would fain be such, but mainly that men might regard him for his goodness and nobility. Hence his practical notion of the good was weak, and of the noble paltry. His own desire in doing anything was to be approved of, or married in the same, approved of, in the opinions he held, in the plans he pursued, in the doctrines he taught, the married in the poems in which he went halting after Byron, and in the eloquence with which he met one day to astonish great congregations. He imagined himself a poet. He did possess an invaluable gift that of perceiving and admiring more than a little certain forms of the beautiful, but it was rendered merely ridiculous by being conjoined with the miserable ambition, poor as that of any Montebank emperor, to be himself admired for that admiration. He mistook also sensibility for faculty, nor perceived that it was at best but a probable sign that he might be able to do something or other with pleasure, perhaps with success. If any one judge it hard that men should be with ambitions to whom's, whose obje objects they can never attain, I answer ambition or shadow of aspiration. Ginevra was hardly the same child after the experience of that terrible morning. At no time very much at home with her father, something had now come between them to remove which all her struggles to love him as before was unavailing. The father was too unsympathetic to take note of the look of fear that crossed her face if ever he addressed her suddenly, and when she was absorbed in fighting the thoughts that would come, he took her constraint for sullenness. With a cold spot in his heart, where once had dwelt some genuine regard for Donal, Fergus went back to college. Donal went on herding the cattle, cudgeling, horny, and reading what books he could lay his hands on. There was no supply through Fergus any more, alas! The year before, ere he took his leave, he had been careful to see Donal provided with at least books for study, but this time he left him to shift for himself. He was small because he was proud, spiteful because he was conceited. He would let Donal know what it was to have lost his favor. But Donal did not suffer much, except in the loss of the friendship itself. He managed to get the loan of a copy of Burns, better meet for than the poetry of Byron or even Scott. An innate cleanliness of soul rendered the occasional coarseness to him harmless, and the mighty torrent of the man's life broken by occasional pools reflecting the stars, its headlong hatred of hypocrisy and false religion, its generosity and struggling conscientiousness, its failures and its repentances roused much in the heart of Donal. Happily the copy he had borrowed had in it a tolerable biography, and that re read along with the man's work enabled him, young as he was, to see something of where and how he had failed, and to shadow out to himself not altogether vaguely the perils to which the greatest must be exposed who cannot rule their own thoughts but like a mere child reels from one mood unto another at the will of what from reading Burns, Donal learned also not a little of the capabilities of his own language, for sad as he was by birth and country and mental character, he could not speak the Gaelic, that language soft as the speech of streams from ragged mountains, 
and wild as that of the wind in the tops of the fir trees the language at once of bards and fighting men had so far ebbed from the region lingering only here and there in the hollow pools of old memories that donald had never learned it and the lowland scotch an ancient branch of english dry and gnarled but still flourishing in its old age had become instead his mother tongue and the man who loves the antique speech or even the mere patois of his childhood and knows how to use it possesses therein a certain kind of power over the hearts of men which the most refined and perfect of languages cannot give inasmuch as it has travelled farther from the original sources of laughter and tears. But the old Scottish itself is, alas, rapidly vanishing before a poor, shabby imitation of modern English, itself a weaker language in sound, however enriched in words since the days of Shakespeare, when it was far more like Scotch in its utterance than it is now. My mother tongue, how sweet thy tone, how near to good I lied, where even my heart of steel or stone, thou wouldst drive out the pride. So sings Cosgroth in and concerning his own Platduch, so nearly akin to the English. To a poet especially is it an inestimable advantage to be able to employ such a language for his purposes. Not only was it the speech of his childhood, when he saw everything with fresh, true eyes, but it is itself a child's speech, and the child way of saying must always lie nearer the child way of seeing, which is the poetic way. Therefore, as the poetic faculty was now slowly asserting itself in Donald, it was of vast importance that he should know what the genius of Scotland had been able to do with his homely mother tongue. For though that tongue alone could what poetry had in him have thoroughly fair play, and it turned do its best towards this development, which is the first and greatest use of poetry. It is a ruinous misjudgment to contemptibly to be asserted, but not to contemptibly to be acted upon, that the end of poetry is publication. Not yet, however, had Donald written a single stanza, a line, or at most two, would now and then come into his head with a buzz, like a wandering honeybee, that had mistaken his hive, generally in the shape of a humorous maldiction on horny, but that was all. In the meantime, Gibby slept and waked and slept again, night after night, with the loveliest days between, at the cottage on Glashgarn. The morning after his arrival, the first thing he was aware of was Janet's face, beaming over him, with a look in its eyes more like worship than benevolence. Her husband was gone, and she was about to mount the cow, and was anxious, lest, while she was away, he should disappear as before. But the light that rushed into his eyes was in full response to that which kindled the light in hers. And her misgiving vanished. He could not love her like that and leave her. She gave him his breakfast of porridge and milk, and went to her cow. When she came back, she found everything tidy in the cottage. The floor swept, every dish washed and set aside, and Gibby was examining an old shoe of Robert's to see whether he could not mend it. Janet, having therefore leisure, proceeded at once with joy to the construction of a garment she had been devising for him. The design was simple and its execution easy. Taking a blue winsy petticoat of her own, drawing it in round his waist, and tying it over the chemise, which was his only garment, she found, as she had expected, that its hem reached his feet, 
She partly divided it up the middle, before and behind, and had but to backstitch two short seams, and there was a pair of cellar-like trousers, as tidy as comfortable. Gibby was delighted with them. True, they had no pockets, but then he had nothing to put in pockets, and one might come to think of that, that as an advantage. Gibby indeed had never had pockets, for the pockets of the garments he had had were always worn out before they reached him. Then Janet thought about a cap, but considering him a moment critically, and seeing how his hair stood out like thatch eaves round his head, she took herself instead to her new testament. Gibby stood by as she read in silence, gazing with delight, for he thought it must be a book of ballads, like Donald's, that she was reading. But Janet found his presence, his unresting attitude, and his gaze discomposing. To worship freely one must be alone, or else with fellow worshippers. And reading and worshipping were often so mingled with Janet as to form but one mental consciousness. She looked up, therefore, from her book and said, Can ye read, laddie? Gibby shook his head. Sit ye doon then, and I's read till ye. Gibby obeyed more than willingly, expecting to hear some anxious Scots tale of love, chivalry. Instead, it was one of those love, awful glory, sad chapters in the end of the Gospel of John, over which hangs the darkest cloud of human sorrow, shot through and through with the irradiance of light eternal, essential, invincible. Whether it was the uncertain response to Janet's tone merely, or to truth too loud to be heard, save as a thrill of some chord in his own spirit, having its own end indeed twisted around an earthly peg with the other looped a tail of peace far in the unknown, I cannot tell. It may have been that the name now and then recurring brought to his mind the last words of poor Sambo. Anyhow, when Janet looked up, she saw the tears rolling down the child's face. At the same time, from the expression of his countenance, she judged that his understanding had grasped nothing. She turned, therefore, to the parable of the prodigal son and read it. Even that had now a few words and phrases unknown to Gibby, but he did not fail to catch the drift of the perfect story. For had not Gibby himself had a father to whose bosom he went home every night? Let but love be the interpreter, and what most wretched type will not serve the turn for the carriage of profoundest truth? The prodigal's lowest degradation, Gibby did not understand, but Janet saw the expression of the boy's face alter with every tone of the tale, through all the garment between the swine's trough and the arms of the father. Then at last he burst, not into tears, Gibby was not much acquainted with weeping, but into a laugh of loud triumph. He clapped his hands, and in a shiver of ecstasy, stood like a stork upon one leg, as if so much of him was all that could be spared for this lower world, and screwed himself together. Janet was well satisfied with her experiment. Most Scotch women, and more than most Scotch men, would have rebuked him for laughing, but Janet knew in herself a certain tension of delight, which nothing served to relieve but a wild laughter of holy, holiest gladness, and never in tears of deepest emotion did her heart appeal more directly to its God. It is the heart that is not yet sure of its God that is afraid to laugh, and thus had Gibby his first lesson in the only thing worth learning, in that which to be learned at all demands the uniting energy of heart and soul and strength and mind, and from that day he went on learning it. I cannot tell how, or what were the slow stages by which his mind budded and swelled until it burst into the flower of humanity, the knowledge of God.
I cannot tell the shape of the door by which the Lord entered into that house, and took everlasting possession of it. I cannot even tell in what shape he appeared himself, and give his thoughts, for the Lord can take any shape. Happily, Janet never suspected how utter was Gibby's ignorance. She never dreamed that he did not know what was generally said about Jesus Christ. She thought he must know as well as she the outlines of his story, and the purpose of his life and death as commonly taught, and therefore never attempted explanations. Gibby's ideas of God, he got all from the mouth of theology himself, the Word of God, and to the theologian who will not be content with his teaching, the disciple of Jesus must just turn his back, that his face may be to his master. So teaching him only that which she loved, not that which she had been taught, Janet read to Gibby of Jesus, talked to him of Jesus, dreamed to him about Jesus, until at length Gibby did not think to watch, and knew nothing of the process by which it came about. His whole soul was full of the man, of his doings, of his words, of his thoughts, of his life. Jesus Christ was in him. He was possessed by him. Almost before he knew, he was trying to fashion his life after that of his master. Between the two, it was a sweet teaching, a sweet learning. Jesus knows the Father and can reveal him. Janet studied only Jesus, and as a man knows his friend, so she only, infinitely better, knew her more than friend, her Lord and her God. Whatever Janet then might perhaps, I do not know, have imagined it her duty to say to Gibby, had she surmised his ignorance, having long ceased to trouble her own head, she had now no inclination to trouble Gibby's heart with what men call the plan of salvation. It was enough to her to find that he followed her master. Being in the light, she understood the light, and had no need of system to explain it to her. She lived by the word proceeding out of the mouth of God. Thank you for listening to another episode of Acresoft Story Classic. Mm-hmm.